Well, let me say welcome again. Um, it's good to see you all here. Um, my name is Feli Lawson, and I'm a member of the teaching team here at Grace. Um, I have something prepared here that I'm going to read for two reasons. First of all, because I'm nervous, and second of all, because some of the things I'm going to tell you just occurred to me on the way over here this morning. So anyway, it's good to have them right in front of me here. Um, we're about to wrap up a study of the Psalms of Ascent, if you're here for the first time. Um, we started last summer, made it halfway through, and picked up again the beginning of this summer. We're seven weeks through, which today brings us to Psalm 132, the psalm that we read earlier this morning. Um, despite the fact that there are a ton of people in this room who I really love and respect, I'm going to tell you yet another thing about myself that I'm not very proud of. Um, I graduated from Washita Baptist University, which is in Arkadelphia. When I was in school, Washita promoted itself as the very best of academic and Christian excellence. When I was a freshman in the fall of 1984, I couldn't care less about academic or Christian excellence, either one. Um, I wasn't sure exactly how much fun someone could have at a school in a dry county where the women students had a curfew, but... I was determined to find out, and for the first week, I was, frankly, wildly successful. Um, <laughs> um, for the first week, freshman orientation, even the first day of classes, things went really well, and I thought college was going to be a lot of fun. Then on the second day, and pretty much for most of the next four years, my good time was unapologetically squashed by this man. Dr. Bill Downs, he was the head of the communications department at Washita. <laughs> the day he addressed our intro to mass communications class, he had all the warmth and charm of an abandoned missile silo. I was scared to death of him, very strict, never smiled, and he made it really clear that if anybody in the room had any, you know, delusions about becoming a great journalist or, or even a somewhat adequate journalist, they were going to have to go through him first. So pretty much everyone in the room at that point was wondering why we were even there. And I knew I was there. The only reason I was there because I wasn't really good at anything else, and that's how I landed in the intro to communications class and started on that particular career path. was pretty confident after that first day that um, my college career was going to last maybe one semester. But I was determined that I was going to buckle down and at least give it a shot. And um, on the way, I actually learned a lot from Dr. Downs. One of the first and probably most important lessons that he taught was the necessity of true research, cultivating sources, being accurate, being clear, being certain about the who, what, when, where, how, why, and how. And if an assignment was turned in reflecting that due diligence had not been paid to these things, this would happen. A paper would come back looking like it had been used to mop up a shark attack, and I had more than my fair share of those. After all these years, I still get raging PTSD at the sight of a red flare pen. Can't stand them. Dr. Downs was right to be militant about clarity and certainty. I've worked for probably 15 editors at four newspapers over the years, and to a person, every single one of them insisted on the same thing. So I'm really comfortable in that world. 
But here in front of you today, sharing a text that is going to leave us with more questions than answers really gives me the hives. I don't like it. I don't like loose ends. Psalm 132 is obviously beautiful and poetic. Who do we have to thank for it? Could be David, but probably not. Might be Solomon. Could be someone else altogether. Um, as one of the Psalms of Ascent, was it actually sung by the Jews on their way to the temple? Nobody really knows for sure. And I don't understand all the themes and the undercurrents. I mean, you heard how long it is. There's a lot there. Um, toward the end, it gets a little grudge-matchy. I don't really understand what we're supposed to do with that. And I'm really not sure as a whole what that text is supposed to say to us today. At the same time, it convicts me in some ways that I really don't like to talk about especially out loud. I don't even really like to think about them. These are the kinds of loose ends that really make me come undone, but in spite of them, uh, I think it's really important for us to take a look at this text because here it is in the Old Testament, and as much of the Old Testament does when we look at it through what John Ray likes to call a Christological hermeneutic, and when we look back at the Old Testament and think about what it means in light of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, this Old Testament text has something to say to us that's really important, something that goes to the heart of our identity as Christians. Um, that's what I want to focus on this morning. Um, okay, so also in case you're with us for the first time, I want you to know that we don't have one pastor. Folks on the teaching team meet every Wednesday morning to explore the text for the week, whatever we're going to look at on Sunday morning, and we take turns sharing about it. So you won't hear from the same person every week, which is very different than the tradition I come from. The last time I got to be in front of you, I introduced you to my dad. He was a Southern Baptist pastor for close to 60 years. And he loved to preach. He was really particular about who he chose to share his pulpit with, and he only shared a handful of times each year. Um, he also loved worship, and he took it very seriously, planned for it, very carefully. I can probably count on almost one hand the number of times he missed a worship service in his whole preach, active preaching career. And he didn't think anyone in our family should miss one either. His list of approved reasons for worship absence was very short. <laughs> he dedicated a tremendous amount of time and energy and prayer to creating engaging opportunities for worship. And he'd get really excited about it. But like I said about myself earlier, even my dad, as excited as he could be, which was like schoolboy giddy, I mean, he loved Sunday morning better than anything. Even he could not compare to the level of excitement that we see reflected here um, in David's enthusiasm about the temple. Um, I'll just like think about that. Think about that intensity. I'm not going home. I'm not going to bed. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not even going to take time to rest until I find a home for God, a house for the strong God of Jacob. There are several themes in this passage, but the part I'm drawn to and the part I want us to focus on today is that enthusiasm and David's passion to build a permanent home for God. So first, some context. Um, this particular vow in this psalm isn't recorded anywhere else, but it's based on something that happened in 2 Samuel 7. 
Um, if you've got time later to read it, it's a, it's a very interesting story. You should, you should take a look. Um, but basically, after David finally becomes king and finishes building this spectacular palace for himself, he turns his attention to God's dwelling place, which at this point consists of an ark and a tent. And when I was a kid, I figured most of what I saw in movies was probably at least 80% true. So thanks to Indiana Jones, what I mostly knew about the Ark of the Covenant was that A, it's not a plaything, and B, those who disrespect it and open it release the Kraken and get their faces melted off. So if you're smarter than me and you don't rely on movies for information, you probably know that the Ark of the Covenant was the only manifestation of God's presence on earth. We don't know exactly what it looked like because it's been lost for centuries, but based on the way scripture describes it, the replica in the movie might actually look something like the original. This is what we think probably it it looked like. There's plenty to be fascinated about with regard to the Ark, But for this conversation about worship, here's the thing that fascinates me the most. God gave Moses like a zillion mind-numbingly specific instructions about the ark. took forever to build it, and the tent too. Um, Because God wanted to be in the midst of his people, the ark went everywhere they did, beginning with wandering in the desert for almost 40 years. And here's an example of how holy it was. Um, This is the first time I had come across this story. You all might be familiar with it, but I I thought it was hilarious. Uh, When the Philistines defeated the Israelites, they took the ark as part of their bounty. Um, They took it to their capital city, which was a city called Ashdod, and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Does anybody know this story? Anybody know? (laughs) So the next day, the Philistines go to the temple, and they find Dagon falling over on his face. And so they set him back up. (laughs) So they set him back up. And then come back the next day, on the second day, he's been decapitated, his hands have been cut off. So they're thinking, hmm, that's creepy. And then on top of that, plague breaks out in Ashdod. So they decide they want, you know, to, for the um, ark to move on. So they send it to two more cities. And both times, horrific plagues break out in the cities where the ark was contained. And so after about seven months, they decided they need to send it back where it came from. So they send it back to the Israelites with gifts, like the ransom of red cheese, don't you think? <laughs> I just think that's so funny. Anyway, uh, despite the ark's significance, God never asked for a temple. You know, David was all really, you know, thrilled to do this wonderful thing for God that he thought was so important, but God never asked for that, didn't really desire it. Now, he allowed David's son Solomon to build a temple, but he never requested it himself, never requested that anyone construct a permanent home for the ark, he seems to be showing us that he cares way more about relationships than relics in that, which I think is very interesting because that's the essence of worship, right? Relationship. Think about the intensity of David's passion for honoring God. It was natural, effusive. It was a response to God's protection, provision, and promises, a response based on who David knew God to be. You know, all throughout the psalm, we hear David talk about his, his reverence for God and his love of God, very specific ways that God intervened for him and took care of him, provided for him, and disciplined him and loved him. From the very beginning of everything, God has always wanted to dwell with us. That's his heart. So much so that he became one of us. He lived 
and died and was resurrected to make a way to have relationship with us, the God of the universe. He offers us these crazy, outlandish, inexhaustible, over-the-top gifts of love and peace and redemption and grace. There's nothing we can do to earn them, and there's nothing we can do to make God change his mind and take them back. So if we really believe that and profess that it's true, and we do, right? We preach it in this church, right? All of us believe that. If we really believe it and we profess that it's true, then what should our response look like? David had powerful markers in his life, specific instances that he could look back on and remember how God had acted on his behalf. And so do I. I have those markers, and if you've known Jesus very long, then you have markers too. Worship gives us time and space to recognize those markers, to remember what they teach us about God, and to respond out of that, out of our love and out of our gratitude for what we know to be true. Apart from the intensely personal dimension of worship, it's also about community. We can worship wherever we are right, whoever we're with. But there's something I think is especially nurturing about worship in a familiar community. First Peter 2 tells us that we're living stones, right? Together we're built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. We need each other. And when we're filled with the Spirit and worship together, we're naturally going to connect with one another there. Also, if we're willing to be transparent our worship will be informed by what we see of Christ in each other. We're going to learn things about God's nature and his heart that we might not know based on our own experience. I know, for instance, the power of Christ alive in my old sister when she learned during her very first mammogram ever that she had breast cancer. And in the fear and the uncertainty of what's ahead, she worships the God who she trusts with utmost certainty without a question. I know the power of Christ alive in two of my closest friends when I watch them bearing their youngest child in their grief and anger and unfathomable pain lift their hands to worship, to worship the God they know will sustain them without question. I know the power of Christ alive in my dad. I've shared this with you before. When in the final stages of Alzheimer's, when he couldn't remember anything, he would smile and sing hymns that triggered memory, spiritual memory. What he knew to be true about God, he would respond, even though he'd forgotten most of everything else. He remembered that. It was a part of who he was, just as it's a part of who we are. Our worship isn't meant to be contained within the walls of wherever we happen to be on Sunday morning. If we're growing in a relationship with Jesus, worship informs our week. And our week is informed by our worship. Shouldn't we be different because of it? Not because we're churchy or because we make up our minds to be better behaved, but because we've spent time in the presence of the living God, because the relationship we have with him is growing us and changing us all the time. In a shocking surprise twist, probably everyone of you would see coming during that first semester at Washita, 
it didn't take long to discover that Dr. Downs did actually smile from time to time. And as hard as he tried to hide it at first, he had a big heart, has a big heart, cares deeply about people, cared deeply about his students. He's solely responsible for any confidence I have in myself as a writer, and he's largely responsible for the fact that I made anything of my education at all because I knew that he believed in me because he took time to get to know me and to encourage me and to discipline me when I needed it. Relationship. Relationship makes all the difference, right? So what are we doing here? If, if worship has become a passive experience for us, how do we generate David's enthusiasm for it? How do we nurture our faith community with our worship? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. As I said, this passage prompts a lot of questions but doesn't give us very many answers. That's for us to figure out, don't you think? I hope that you'll talk about it this week in your grace groups. And if you're not part of a grace group, I hope you'll talk about it at home, talk about it with your family, talk about it with your friends, and pray about it. Maybe begin this morning as you take communion. I want to invite the worship team back. And um, while they play, I want you to know that our table is open to everyone, everyone who's seeking Jesus. We don't dismiss by rows, so come as you will. Um, you can also pray with someone you trust right here in the worship center, here in your seat. You can come to the, the front here and pray. Pray in one of the um, back corners. Lucian, are you headed back there to pray? Back there with Lucian. Um, Giving back to God is also an act of worship, so we'll pass the basket in case you want to give to the work of our church. We would appreciate that. For the next few minutes, um, I hope you'll think about what you believe, what you know to be true about God, because he's made himself real to you. How will you respond? Who's serving? This was one serve communion. Anyone? Thank you, Gia. Pedro, will you come help her? So, as I said, come as you will. Um, and remember this as you do. Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had been eating, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Mm -hmm.